Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent in those days, told no one any of the things they had seen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The Lord be with you. you. Amen. Amen. Today is one of those, um, you might say, stained glass window Sundays. And what I mean by that is uh, it's one of those Sundays if you tell someone, one of your friends that is not part of a church, didn't grow up in a church, and they hear the word Transfiguration Sunday, they're like, huh? And that's what I mean. It's that stained glass window that kind of, it's not user friendly. And, and uh, they may even ask, is it related to Harry Potter? Because that's usually when people learn about the word transfiguration uh, nowadays. Uh, but it's different. It's the morning we prepare to begin our work towards Jerusalem with Jesus. Um, his, this 40-day march to his destiny, to the fulfillment of his life purpose, his mission, begins this coming Wednesday, uh, on Ash Wednesday, follows the 40 days throughout uh, Ash Wednesday leading up to Holy Week, Good Friday, and then finally Easter. And so, uh, and yet many count it as Ash Wednesday, but I think this Sunday is that transition moment for that. It's the, it's the moment when Jesus finally arrives and he cries as he's overlooking a hill, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, how I would have loved you, but you would not. Days later, he looks down another hilltop over that same city, crying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this Sunday begins on a, on a mountain as well, that uh, of the mountain that he takes Peter, James, and John. Um, and interesting enough, um, um, about Jesus' journey of his life, death, and resurrection, um, Many people look at those moments and they look at them as several theories. We call them atonement theories. There are several classic ones and not to talk heady and I'm not going to go into a lot of those because I do think it would mean a great sermon series sometime uh, because each of those theories work better at different points in our lives than others. Um, for example, here are two common ones that are found in the U.S. and you grew up with one of these or both of these or a combination. Marcus Borg, in his book, Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time, he gives a helpful lens to look at the gospel text as we journey with Jesus in Jerusalem. In the opening chapter, Borg suggests that our image of Jesus plays a central role in giving shape to our life. He says there are two dominant images in the American culture. The first is what he calls the popular image. Um, this is the image of Jesus that is um, a little bit more divine than anything else. 
a little mystical. He makes people appear and disappear, raises people from the dead, controls the weather. Um, and that life's journey is, uh, well, the technical name we call it is that penal substitutionary theory, which means it was his mission to die for your sins. You know, that was the saving purpose of his death. And so the importance of this image, the primary one is believing. And living a Christian, Christian life, the dominant image means that we believe certain things about Jesus to be true. A second image in our culture, he calls it Jesus the temp- uh, teacher, but the, the theory for this one is moral exemplar. So Jesus' moral teachings leads to a life in which we would be exemplary, that we would want to be like Jesus. So it's just like the, uh, the old question and answer of the children's sermon every time. Uh, what's the answer? And the children go, Jesus, right? Um, and then we're made an example. Look, you're supposed to just be like Jesus. Um, except a lot of times it's like that, that old story about two boys one morning. They're arguing over who gets the last pancake. One boy says, I should get it. I'm older. The other boy says, yeah, but you were mean this week, so I should get it. And his mom comes along and says, what are you arguing about? And they said, who gets the last pancake? And she goes, no, 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 no. One of you, you need to be more like Jesus because Jesus would offer up the last pancake. And as she's walking away, she hears the little boys arguing. Well, wait, it's your turn to be like Jesus. <laughs> so, so they can get the pancake, right? Um, these are fairly common images. Um, both images seem, uh, at least to Borg and to me, inadequate at times. Um, both are valid at times. Um, and I grew up influenced by both of these. Um, to sometimes uh, to think that God, you know, intentionally sent his son, well, that seems like, ooh, a little put off. But yet then to make it all about just being moral seems a little shallow as well. And it would easily be to seem that, well, it's not necessarily either or about believing or doing good. It's both and. Um, which of course, you know, gets us in trouble as well because there's something more that's going on in this passage than just believing or doing good. Um, In fact, it begins earlier uh, in verse 20 of chapter 9 in which Jesus asked that powerful question that he still asks us even today. He asked Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter finally gets something right in his life as he's talking with Jesus. And Jesus replies, you are the, right, you are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And this is the classic way this sermon for Transfiguration Sunday goes. Moses represents the law, Elijah the prophet, with Peter getting it wrong once again. And the journey is down in the mountain for us to believe and then do, do, do. It descends into moralism and works righteousness. The Protestant Reformation felt guilty about this and made it into about belief. And it would be easy for me to say it is both, but as I said earlier, the scripture for today is calling us to something more. Uh, And I've even preached that sermon as well. High on the mountaintop, we got that, but we can't live there, so we need to go out and then do like Jesus as we get down to the bottom. Um, And so... Let's do this. Let's take a moment, take a deep breath, and see what Luke is actually describing. In the ninth chapter of Luke, from verses 28 through 36. Now, I'll be honest, uh, before I read it again, um, Luke gives it away. 
And you can tell this because just after Peter says, you are the Messiah, Jesus tells them about his death and resurrection. After they come down from the mountain and then there's a healing and a kind of flubbing of the disciples once again, what does Jesus do? He tells them about his death and resurrection again. In the middle of it is this powerful transfiguration moment. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, here's a little moment here. It says departure, but the uh, kind of immediate translation is his exodus. You recall exodus, right? Exodus in which Moses went to whom? To say, let my people go. Pharaoh, right? And Pharaoh back then was the full representation of sin and death. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, picture this. Picture this. Moses, Jesus, Elijah. There they are in this stat, and Jesus in all his glory. And suddenly Peter exclaims, Look, it is good for us to worship. Finally, Peter is really, and then it echoes this Peter doesn't know what he's saying. <laughs> to me, it's a further indication that Peter once again doesn't get it wrong, Peter gets it right. He's saying it's good for us to worship. How do we know this? Because Jesus does not rebuke him. Not only that, just after this, the, the disciples that are gathered there are rewarded with this beautiful thing that happens next. It says, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to them. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent in those days told no one any of the things that they had seen. As I said earlier, this is, that, this is that turning point. That turning point for Jesus as he heads to Jerusalem and our turning point to us just before we start Ash Wednesday, our journey. When it leads to the cross, the cross where we fall down and realize that Jesus is the end. Jesus is the pro prophets and the law. From Moses to Elijah, then the only response isn't what we do, but what God has already done. So before we ever think about believing the right things or even doing the right things, here is God coming first to us. Which means, in other words, it is first and foremost about God's grace. Couldn't have planned it better for a better anthem to come forward with amazing grace than this Sunday. It's all about God's grace. That's the good news. We are justified not for our good works or our right belief, our behavior, but because of God's grace alone. In other words, it's not up to us to think a certain way. 
It's not up to us to feel a certain way. It's not up to us to act a certain way or perform a certain way. Jesus frees us from the weight of the law of commandments and belief systems and even the woulda, coulda, shoulda in order to be holy. This is the beginning point of holiness. Not us, but God. It all begins with grace, which uh, is uh, what more Methodist thing can you have? In fact, one of my favorite podcasts, the Methodist podcast called Crackers and Grape Juice, which perfect name for a Methodist podcast. And Jason McKelly in his podcast this week talking about the transfiguration uh, said said these words, and I quote, Christianity is either all grace, in other words, what God has done for you, or it is all works, what you must do for God. Grace and works are mutually exclusive possibilities. It is all the latter, no matter the lip service you might pay to grace, or it is the former. Any attempt to balance or blend grace with works destroys the very notion of grace. It muddles the gospel with the law. It creates a gospel. I know, it doesn't even sound right, does it? <laughs> Which is exactly the sort of toxic religion that's killing the church today. <laughs> Everything that is not the gospel of grace is the law. So whenever you make Christianity about the law, about living a life compatible with the commandments, you become a debtor to every single one of the commandments. This is why this is the only place in all of Scripture where Jesus is asked a question and he does not reply. Peter is right. It is good for us to be here. Pay attention to the interaction in the cloud. Also, the voice of God as the disciples Peter, James, and John behold it are not destroyed. Almost every reference to people getting close to the holiness of God, whether it's the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy of Holies, is referenced death. Instead, Jesus offers them life. So in other words, it's good for us to see that the law, according to which not one of us measures up. It's why much of our liturgy and many of our prayers throughout the history of the Christian church Say, be merciful to me, O God, a sinner. We don't like to say that nowadays, but none of us measure up. None of us. There is only one, and he is the one who is beginning this journey and ends in the glory of his grace. So the law is fulfilled in us, not through our pious deeds, not through our holy living, not for our holy thinking, but through faith alone. Faith alone, the gospel of grace, is what reckons to you the credit of a lifestyle compatible with Christian teaching. That's not just good news. That's the good news. Jesus not only then goes forth from there down to the mountain to prove that (laughs) to the disciples who are so bewildered and it takes them the resurrection to finally begin to look at it differently. And here's why to even us still today who gather in this place. Because the church, the church is the only place in the world, or at least it should be, where we can lay down all of our burdens of what we ought to do but don't, and what we oughtn't do but did. The church is the only place where we lay those burdens down and rest in God's grace. Peter is right. This is the whole point of gathering to worship. Because we haven't lived up. 
We need those moments in which all that we can do, all that we can say is, God, have mercy. In which we cry out, I haven't been able to act it as much as I, and I'm trying to believe, but I'm not sure if I'm there or I'm somewhere else or whatever else. And Jesus tells us, look, let go. Let go and let God's grace hold us. And until we learn to lay down the law and go cold turkey from commandment keeping and holiness enforcing, until we learn to rest in grace, then every journey back down the mountain will be a descent that leaves the gospel behind. Which is exactly what happens next. Disciples descend. They encounter a father with a son in which the father said, I tried to go to your disciples, but they say they couldn't do it. Why? Because once again, they're trying to put it as something they are doing. When all of Jesus' journey has been, here, let me. Today is Transfiguration Sunday, but to me this is, um, it seems more likely to call it Transformation Sunday. Because a relationship with God's grace will always lead us to transformation. Anyone can be transfigured. Anyone can exercise, diet, liposuction, a makeover, some new clothes, a new smile. The outside can be changed. But the inside? Yeah. It's the inside that shapes how we live and love and relate to others and to the world. It's the inside that cries for transformation. It's, uh, it's no wonder that people sometimes often look at the church and say, what a bunch of hypocrites. Well, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> you then tell them you'd be welcome there. You'd fit right in, right? <laughs> Maybe a little more gentler than that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but yeah, we don't measure up. But in God's grace, we are lifted up, carried up, blessed up because of God's love. This is a day to celebrate the transformation to which we are called in recovering our birthright as children of God. This is a day to reclaim our true identity as sons and daughters of God. This is to declare our true self to the world. I am love. I am somebody. I am God's child. Not because of, you know, who I am, but because whose I am. I am God's child. True life, eternal life, a compassionate life about a relationship with God to which the Christian tradition points me. A sign that God's incarnation in me, living fully in that spirit, is compassion. St. Paul understood that through the fruit of that relationship is experienced through love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We have more room in our hearts for love when our heart has been broken open. So this morning, here's my challenge. It's an opportunity for you to open your hearts and minds as we begin a Lenten journey of transformation where you are invited to meet Jesus again. And as a first step in this Lenten journey, I don't want you to do anything or think anything, but simply to be held. And imagine that you are held in God's grace, that you are loved, not for what you know or what you do or who you know or what you have, or simply all the worries that you have in the world, but simply to rest and receive. Before you were born, you were surrounded by God's love. You always have been. It's just that sometimes we don't remember. We put it all on ourselves again, and then we worry we're not doing enough. 
we're not thinking the right way or doing the right thing. Instead, that's another reminder to let go, to let God, and rest in that grace. God remembers you. God knows you. God loves you. Amen? Amen. And so with that, um, let us pray. Father, remind us in those moments that your love is warm and gentle, that as we listen to you calling us by name, inviting us to enter into a deeper relationship where you live in this reality, that you stand and surround us no matter what happens with the assurance that you are there for us and with us, not just this morning or tomorrow, but always. Because we are your child. We're your children. No matter our worries, no matter our stresses, no matter our plans, no matter our pains, we are your children. Remind us that we are loved both now and always. Amen.